Welcome to the Nourished and Nurturing Podcast, for two holistic-minded moms with a passion for real food and raising healthy, empowered children. We want to provide a safe and educational, judgment-free zone for supporting women as they journey into motherhood and discover the mom they were meant to be. I'm Marissa of Confidently Balanced. I'm a former speech-language pathologist turned nutritional therapy practitioner and have a passion for all things health, wellness, and mindset. I'm also a mama to a little guy with a big personality. And I'm Michelle. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner student. I have a degree in Thai massage and a master's in business analytics. I'm a mama to a little one and have another one on the way. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical concern. Hello. Hi, how's it going? It's going. It's been it's been a week over here. Yeah. Yeah. Um some good stuff, some not so good stuff. Um my son has been potty training really well and I feel like I shouldn't be saying that out loud. <laughs> it was the first day was rough just because he totally understands the sensations of both number 1 and number 2 peeing and pooping, but he was just so emotionally attached to the diaper that it was incredibly rough for him. Um, but once we got over that like hour and a half hump of him just screaming that he didn't want his diaper off, he was fine. He's like woken us up at night to tell us he has to go to the bathroom. He has woken up dry every, every morning and every nap actually. So oh, it's a relief. <laughs> it's a big, yeah. Relief. I actually think I want to like talk, like delve into potty training a little more on an episode. Cause, um, I think I was asking you about that back when we were potty training and you're just like, we're not there yet. But yeah, um, yeah, it is interesting like how they, like the feedback you get from them and we did it at different ages. So that could be interesting too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we kind of followed, we read the book, Oh Crap, and I am blanking on the author right now, but Mm -hmm. kind of does it in blocks and we're on block two. Like he's able to wear his clothes, his pants, but no underwear yet. So we're getting there, but. I did, I did the similar thing. I didn't read the book. I just heard about it from other people who read the book. So I I don't know how closely I followed it, but we did the same method. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been really great. So hopefully it stays great. Um, kind of had a lot of up and down stuff with family lately, but it looks like everything is on the up and up, which is good. And I picked up a part-time job. That's a new thing. So I'm going to be working from home um, part-time, which is very exciting. It's kind of like a blend of, of a health coach with some customer service. Like there's these um, people that come into the program. It's already set up for them. And it's like the framework is there. And I'm kind of the first face they see. And I get to help them get started and um, kind of have communication with them without throughout the five-month program that they're doing and just touch base and help them and I'm very excited about it. I think it's going to be a good balance for me. So, and it'll stay at home even after COVID. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Very excited. But I think that's about all I've got. What's going on with you? I'm still trying to pick up a part time job. (laughs) I know. Um, Yeah. I've um, tried to ask my current job if I could go part time eventually, and they said no. So I'm really looking. I want to put more into my nutrition business and grow this. And I I love doing this. I love helping people and the conversations I've had and the people I've met have been incredible. 
um, but I'm not quite ready to to totally give up my job. So I'm trying to see if there's any out options out there to work part time and and shift that a little bit. So um, hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. I, I would love it if the next time we chatted, I'm just like, everything fell into place. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, there's some really exciting things going on with the nutrition business. So with the book, the guide we're creating for the postpartum nutrition, we've completed our first round of focus groups. So we've sent the sample book out and got feedback from people and it's just so exciting. That is, um, that's yeah. a big deal. Yeah. So it's really feeling real, like having a cover and like something pretty you can scroll through. So I'm, I'm just super pumped about it. And we have a release date. I have my calendar behind me. (laughs) (laughs) Plan. Yeah. It's uh, September 23rd. So I I will be sure to let everybody know here when they can pre-order it. But um, so yeah, it's, it's coming along and I'm, I just love it so much. I'm really proud of it. And it's, just tapping into this different it's this creative energy and this like positive place versus I think my current job has just been draining for a while and it's you know it's supported my family it served what it needed to serve but I think it's just I'm done with that phase of my life so yeah it's like scary to even say that because I don't want to go back on it (laughs) like it would be embarrassing if I didn't end up quitting but I'm putting it out there now. Yeah. So. I think you you know, like your gut's telling you it's time. So it's not yeah. always easy to listen to our intuition. <laughs> yeah. So, and I don't know, I know we've talked about this a little bit, but like going back to work part-time. So it's been a month now since I've been back and it's been definitely challenging. And then something else is my milk supply just started tanking. Um, so I don't know if that's stress, like it's, it's much easier to keep up your milk when you're breastfeeding versus pumping. So now I've been pumping during the weekdays for a month now, and that, that output has really decreased. And I'm, it's just, there's a lot of things that are really kind of a wake up call that, um, I just, maternity leave was such a gift. Like I was happy. I had this time with my baby and I feel so connected to her in a way I never really got with Connor because of, of what my life was like then. And I just want to get more of that. So I'm like, I, I need to do it now. It's like, right. It's right there. It's, I, I loved that. And just physically there's some muscle pain, some headaches, some sleep, you know, my sleep's okay, but it's not what it was when I wasn't working. And so obviously work is a stressor, like (laughs) not having a 40 hour week job versus having one. But, um, so I'm picking up on these, these differences physiologically and I ready to be done with it. (laughs) Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait for you. I know it's going to happen. I just can't wait. Yeah. So we actually have some listener questions today. We want to jump into those again. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, we got kind of a variety of uh, questions this week. Our first question is from Laura. I tend to avoid the sun due to concerns about skin cancer, but I've heard it can be really important to get some exposure to get vitamin D. Which is worse, exposing your skin to the sun or always being covered with sunscreen? 
So I actually love this question because this is a debate I've been having with Scott for several years. Like he's, he tends to be like a always before I even get outside slather completely with sunscreen and he's very fair. Um, I'm fair, but he's even more fair. And obviously the kids are fair. Um, so I will say first on the vitamin D thing, something a lot of people aren't doing is get your vitamin D levels tested. Um, I think the ideal range is between 40 and 50 and you don't need it to be high, but most people, depending on where you live, if you live probably where me or Marissa live, almost everybody's low. And I think the lab standard is below 30, it would be considered too low, but really I think you want to be up above 40. So that's something I, and I'm, I'm diligent about vitamin D and supplementing and I still have been low and I got tested more recently because of pregnancy when they're drawing blood anyway, it's easier to just say, Oh, add in, (laughs) add in vitamin D, add in whatever else you want to get. And so I was low and I, I supplemented more, but um, that's just the first piece to this is before I get into the rest of my question is I recommend testing. So something interesting about sun exposure and this increase in skin cancer is I want to explain the difference between UVA and UVB rays. So UVB rays are the ones that burn you. So like B for burn. and they, the sunscreens back when we were growing up in the eighties and nineties used to only block UVB, but didn't block UVA and UVA can still get in and cause things like skin damage and skin cancer. And these, these are things that were not blocked for years. So all of a sudden people are able to spend all day out in the sun and not get burned but they were still damaging their skin because they didn't have the full spectrum sunscreens that we have now. So I think, I think by now in 2020, most sunscreens will say full spectrum on it. And I'll get into difference differences in sunscreen in a minute, but that is something we're gonna, I, I think we're really gonna see an increase in skin cancer for these generations that grew up only blocking the UVB rays. And then something else on that is, Things like windows block UVB, but not UVA. So if you're driving in a car all the time or, you know, you're not getting burned, you're still getting that exposure to the UVA rays and it can damage your skin and lead to skin skin cancer. So I think that's not something a lot of people think about. They think about if I get a sunburn I get skin cancer, but they're not really thinking about all the effects of the sun. And just to put this, like our NTA program talks a lot about the ancestral perspective. And to put that in perspective, if we didn't have sunscreens and we were people out in the sun, like like our ancestors were, they would get some sun exposure and then have to be in the shade. So you're either getting the full spectrum of the sun or nothing. It wasn't like we can block part of it and then now we can be in the sun all day. Like we kind of messed with that. So I don't think the sun is inherently bad and it was meant to 
our, our skin was meant to get that full spectrum together, not block part of it. And then, um, think we know better, like, Oh, we're not getting burned. So we're fine. So, um, then with vitamin D people with lighter skin need less exposure to get vitamin D. So the, if you're more fair skinned and you're more likely to burn, you can stay in the sun less and get the same amount of vitamin D produced as somebody who doesn't tend to burn as quickly and they're in the sun longer. Um, so that's, that's a positive thing that you're not, you don't have to be out there burning yourself to get the vitamin D. Um, so I think it's just consuming sun in responsible <laughs> amounts is really what I would recommend. And they say about half of the amount of time it takes for your skin to get pink. If you have that, um, I hope I hope nobody's out there getting horrible sunburns because I'm definitely not recommending that. But if you're out there for a, a m- amount of time where your skin does not get pink, it's a healthy amount of sun. Um, so I'll also talk, I will always wear sunscreen on my face, uh, especially I will reapply very often on my nose and things like that. If the sun is, uh, heavy, because I don't want to get that extra sun on my face. Your face is really always in the sun when you're outside. So it's overexposed and it's an area that we're more concerned about the effects of skin of sun on our skin. So, um, but the, there's other positive benefits of being out in the sun, like regulating circadian rhythm. So being out in the sun in the morning is a good thing. And it's not just your eyes taking in that sun, it's your skin as well. So I, I think it's like one of those use in moderation <laughs> advice, advice type of things. Um, supplementing, I think, again, if you're getting your levels tested, I think a lot of people need supplementing, especially in the winter. and um, just so I said, I would touch on sunscreen. I really recommend a min- mineral sunscreen versus a chemical sunscreen. Um, so if you're if you want to be out in the sun longer than that half the time it takes for your skin to get pink, then you're going to want to use a sunscreen if you're going to stay in the sun longer. So um, a mineral sunscreen is going to be zinc oxide or titanium uh, oxide and if it's not that, if it's like oxybenzone or any of those chemical ingredients as the active ingredient in your sunscreen, those actually do get in your bloodstream. And after a single use, it stays in your blood for three weeks. And it's not, it's a, it's a chemical that's, I mean, you don't, it, your liver has to process it. It's a toxic thing in your bloodstream that you don't, in my opinion, don't want in there. And then the, the, Mineral sunscreens have larger particles and they actually don't absorb into your blood at all. They just sit on top of your skin. They're called a barrier sunscreen. So it creates a layer on top of your skin so that the sun isn't burning. And then obviously Marissa and I have both been involved in Beauty Counter. I don't think it has to be Beauty Counter, but the the nice thing they do have about their sunscreen is it doesn't leave as much of a white film when you put it on. So that's why I like it. But for... Your kids, you could use any. They have a lot of kids' sunscreens that are mineral-based, and you don't necessarily have to pay that higher price. That you know, I don't want to look white and put after I put sunscreen on. So that's that's why I would use a brand like that. But mm-hmm. I think that's all I have to say on sun. Well, that's good. A lot of my stuff overlaps. I definitely agree on 
getting your vitamin D tested. That's something I try to do for a couple times a year. Um, I think this was maybe a year and a half ago when I, when I moved here, I got it tested for the first time and it was very low, like low thirties. And I was shocked by that because I had been not over supplementing, but I had been dosing myself a little higher just because I was nursing and I, I wasn't supplementing my son and it was still so low. So I am team get your vitamin D tested. Do you test your son's vitamin D levels? Um, he did actually get tested at his two year. It was part of his routine two year blood work. And they did say he was his practitioner. I love her dearly, but she doesn't put anything online because I don't know, whatever. She's a little woo, but I didn't get to see his exact levels, but he was just a little bit low. She said, so I kind he wasn't, um, doing, uh, I almost said a prenatal. He wasn't doing a vitamin at the time or anything like that. And we kind of started doing that now. So I'm confident that they've come up, but I'm anxious to see at his three year. Um, okay. And my pediatrician doesn't routinely test vitamin D at all. Oh no. So counter has never been tested and that's something I want. And I wish I asked for when he did get blood work, but it is, it is really hard to see the kids get the blood draws. Like it was, they missed the vein when he was, um, when he did it for the iron levels and it just, I know, but I, I do want to get that tested, but I do also supplement. I use liquid and do it like once a week because it's, okay. it's fat soluble, but, yeah. um, I was just curious on that. Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, yeah. And then if I could just add one more thing, what you said on the nursing, I think that was a really good point. I am supplementing pretty heavily because mm-hmm. I'm nursing and I don't want to supplement the baby, the, the, more vitamin D you take in as a nursing mother, the more they get in your milk. So you can supplement like 10,000 IUs a day, which sounds like a lot, but a lot of that is going into your milk. So you're not going to get too high. Yeah. Yeah. I think the minimum is 6,400 whenever you're nursing, if you want to up supplement. So definitely helps to know your levels and go up from there. Um, But yeah. So as far as which is worse, the covering up or putting the sunscreen on or being exposed to the sun. I, I obviously can't say for sure. Cause you know, I'm not your doctor, but I know I was taught, like you said, Michelle, the higher the SPF, the better. That was like, we had a pool growing up and it was like slather on your sunscreen before you even get out there, blah, blah, blah. And like you talked about already, I think like up to 70% of Americans are vitamin D deficient. And honestly, it's, it's probably higher than that. And that can be for a variety of reasons like gut health and your diet and all the things, but it's, it's called the sunshine vitamin for a reason. So most of us, we're going from our home to our car, to our workplace and back again, and we're not really spending time outdoors. So my recommendation, just like you said, Michelle, is trying to get out into the sun, especially in the morning. Um, I think between the hours, like before 10 and after four, I believe is kind of like the loose guidelines there. So you're still getting sun exposure. You're still getting the benefits of vitamin D, but you're not blasting yourself like when it's the the peak sun hours or whatever and I I do completely agree that it's kind of this balance for lack of a better word of um of of covering up and getting exposed because you don't want to burn I mean ideally you don't want to burn so something like even you you might have to build up to it too I've seen kind of a, a variety of different numbers so like between six minutes and 15 minutes for people who are fair skinned and up to like 35, if your skin is more pigmented again, 
that's not based on anything that like I know off the top of my head or any type of science, but just, you know, pre burning, pre your skin turning pink. Um, yeah. And exposing as much of your skin as possible too. That's something where I have convinced Scott, he's going out at lunch in peak sun on our deck and it's about five minutes, but he's, he's exposing his entire back. So he's getting a large area of skin exposed to the sun. Um, so it is, I don't know if he's building up at all. He's not getting any color, but he's getting that five minutes a day. He's nowhere near turning pink, but it's, I think that is significant if you're fair skinned, like it's getting, it's getting vitamin D. And then one other thing on that is if you're low, you get tested. I've, I've actually seen this from a client who was low, but then it was going into summer and she thought, oh, well now I'm, I'm in the sun more. I don't have to supplement to bring it up. That's not gonna, the sun can maintain, I would say, but it's not gonna, bring it up from deficient levels mm-hmm. um yeah in general reading, yeah and i was reading a study that essentially said that most people are getting like they're not able to store it because we're getting so little of it like from food or the sun or whatever you're just kind of like breezing through what your body needs and if that even and because it's fat soluble you know you do want to kind of build up the stores for that um and we're just we're just most of us are not getting that so yeah a lot of what i said echoes what you already explained, which is wonderful. And definitely the sunscreen situation. (laughs) Whenever you were talking about the difference between mineral and chemical sunscreen, I was just kind of having a flashback. Um, There was a summer that my girlfriends and I went to the beach and I just bought this really cheap sunscreen from Walmart. And I think it was oxybenzone or benzene or whatever it is. And I broke out in the most horrible rash. I mean, literally head to toe. I was so swollen. I couldn't even go outside because the heat just made me itchy. I had to find a doctor in South Carolina and get a steroid shot. It was horrible. It was horrible. So from then on, I've kind of like really avoided chemical sunscreens. Um, but they're not only good for you and your bodies, but they're also good for the environment, the coral reefs. That's a huge problem. So definitely think about that when you're, um, purchasing your sunscreen. And I liked that you talked about the SPF levels. That was something I missed. But um, the difference, I've seen people not want to use mineral sunscreens because they only go up to like SPF 30 and they think you need 50. Um, There's no difference. It's like you're blocking 99% of the sun rays versus 98. Uh, If you think you need more coverage than you're getting, it's probably that you need to apply more often, not that you need a higher SPF number. Um, the difference between 20 and 30 is probably like three or 4%. Um, so I would go above, I'd go above 20, but you're not getting much of a difference above that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So our next question came from Missy. I'm concerned about my blood sugar levels. I recently started using a blood glucose meter because I was feeling faint and I thought it might be due to blood sugar swings. Where should my numbers be and what can I do to reduce my risk for developing diabetes? Okay. So I like this question. Um, I have a little bit of experience with this. My mom's blood work came back in the pre-diabetic range a couple years ago. And um, for her, and again, this is anecdotal, but changing the way that she ate made a huge difference. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. But so when you're testing with a glucometer, you're kind of looking for 
trends rather than specific numbers. And I know, at least in my my mom's um, example, for instance, she was kind of, she was eating and then she was testing it, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes later. And you kind of want to wait a little bit longer, maybe about an hour, I'd say, um, just to make sure your body is kind of like assimilating the food and it kind of knows what it's doing. Um, and then again, maybe an hour, like two hours later. So definitely monitor that, but try not to panic. And again, this is without knowing like more of this specific girl's health history or anything. So I'm just going to kind of be speaking more in generalities, but typically when you hear, um, diabetes, pre-diabetes, you're assuming that there's like an insulin problem and you have to cut out carbohydrate. Um, that can be the case, but that's not necessarily the case. Like that's more if you are diagnosed type two diabetic, all the things. So in my opinion, you don't necessarily, again, this is variable, but you don't necessarily need to go super low carb, especially if you're a woman, especially if you're a cycling woman, we need carbohydrates for our hormones. So definitely considering where you're at in your life, your age, where you are on your like your reproductive journey, your fertility, all of those things, as well as your activity level, all of that plays into how your body, like the carb, the carbs that you need and how your body is able to use them. Um, and I read something interesting and I don't really remember like all the details, but where you are in your cycle, like I said, if you're a cycling woman that can affect your insulin sensitivity, I think it's in your luteal phase, but again, don't quote me on that. I just found that to be incredibly interesting. And I don't think I realized that before. Um, so for some people, cortisol can be a factor, right? What's your stress? Like, how are you sleeping? Kind of really honing in on that can make a huge impact on your blood sugar. Um, because if you're stressed out, obviously you're, there's more cortisol in your body. You're not really probably digesting very well, all of those foundational things. So I always, I don't know how many times I've said this on the podcast or just in my life. So it probably sounds like a broken record, but just going back to those foundations, how are you eating? Are you eating a mostly whole foods, unprocessed nutrient dense diet? Are you consuming a lot of processed or packaged foods or foods that might be labeled as health foods, kind of like we talked about in our last keto episode, but really are overly processed. Um, again, how are you sleeping? Are you finding ways to manage stress, like journaling, walking, yoga, exercise, whatever that looks like for you? Um, and hydration too, that can definitely affect your insulin sensitivity and um, the, the ranges there. But again, always starting with a practitioner to kind of if you're not working on these foundations to get to lay the groundwork and then building from there, because sometimes it's not just as simple as eating better, sleeping more. It can be, and oftentimes it is, but that's not necessarily always the case. So I want to be mindful of that um, as well. I know, and again, this is anecdotal for myself. I was having blood sugar issues um, when I was really high anxiety. There were times where I, I had a lot of digestive stuff going on too because of that. Or even just as a mom with a toddler, I would forget to eat or I would forget to eat a lot. Like I'd feed my son lunch and then I'd just kind of like pick at what he had left over and go about the day and forget. And that just causes the blood sugar roller coaster. And my numbers have been all over the place as well. Yeah, Wait, Michelle, I'm sure you just... can speak more to the, to the numbers end. And I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah, so numbers wise, what you really want to look for, I would say is fasting blood sugar under a hundred. And so that's first thing you wake up in the morning before you eat anything. 
And then that one hour after any meal to be under 140. But ideally both both of these, they they're kind of high. Ideally, you'd you'd want them both quite a bit lower, like that fasting blood sugar around 85 or 90, and that uh, one hour after you're eating, probably closer to 120. And so the fainting really makes me think it is like a reactive hypoglycemia or insulin resistance. So those, those are kind of the same thing. And what happens when you're in this state is you consume food and then your body produces insulin, but it's not, insulin is supposed to make the glucose go into your cells. So it's going to make your blood sugar, the, the sugar that's available in your blood, it's going from your blood into your cells. So your blood sugar doesn't go that high. So your body's producing insulin, it takes it out of the blood, puts it in the cells, and you're not getting a spike in your blood sugar. But what happens is if you become insulin resistant, your body produces that insulin, your cells don't take that cue to take in the glucose. So your body produces more insulin, more insulin, more insulin. And then, then your body's finally taking that cue, puts all of the glucose into your cells, and you could actually get a really big blood sugar drop because you actually have too much insulin. So if you're seeing, if you were to track um, your blood sugar numbers throughout the day and you see these kind of spikes and then these big falls, um, that's what reactive hypoglycemia would be. So it's uh, hypoglycemia means low blood sugar. So if you're getting low blood sugar as the result of eating, because your body's reacting to what you eat by give, in giving you low blood sugar, that's what that means. So that's not ideal. And that's where you might get this fainting. So you can get low blood sugar by not eating at all. And you're, you just don't have enough available to use, but you can also get it from eating these really carbohydrate rich things and having this insulin resistance. So you might have that symptoms like fainting, lightheadedness, and those, those kind of reactions during that dip. And you feel like you need to eat again to raise that blood sugar, which you do, you don't want it to be, um, I would say below 60 is very low. It, it really shouldn't be getting there unless you're, um, doing some sort of fast or something, it might drop quite a bit, but that's, that's not where we want our blood sugar. So if that is what's going on, that's what you might want to look for in your numbers. So you're going to take that one hour after you eat, two hours after you eat. And I might also add a three hours after you eat, if you're, depending on when you're feeling this, this light not headedness and see what it's doing. If it, if it has these big spikes. So, and this is considered pre-diabetes, so the, if you're in this state where you're, you're having to produce so much insulin to be able to bring your blood sugar down, the pancreas loses its ability to release insulin, and then that can lead to type 2 diabetes. So if you're in the situation where you eat something, your blood sugar gets really high, and now your pancreas can't produce all this insulin to bring it back down, it's just going to stay high. So that that's diabetes and where you'd need to take insulin because your body your body can't make enough to do that. So I, I do think food is 
a big part of this, but this insulin resistance I'm talking about, it can come from a long time of overeating high glycemic index foods. Um, so this would be eating a lot of carbohydrate without fats and proteins, and then eating processed carbohydrates, um, where, you know, it's white flour, it's very, or in white sugar, where it's easy for your body to break it down quickly. So that's where you're getting that big spike because it doesn't take an hour for your body to break that down and get the glucose into your blood. You're giving it something, um, like a, you know, a donut or something with a lot of sugar and flour and whatever. And you're getting that big spike because your body can convert it so quickly to the bloodstream. So uh, also things like smoothies or juices where your body doesn't have to do much to break it down and it can go right into your bloodstream. So this would be more like smoothies that don't have any fats or proteins in it. You're, you're kind of digesting it in the blender and then your body can, can take it right away and put it in your bloodstream. So if you have just a long history of a lot of these blood sugar spikes, um, that's where this insulin resistance can develop, but also things like you said, stress is a big thing that can just create insulin resistance. Um, not sleeping is a big one too. Like in, in, even in a single night, your insulin resistance after a poor night of sleep goes up. So if you have a, a long history of not sleeping, it could be that, but so yeah, just to what you said, that doesn't mean avoid carbohydrate. It means balance your plate. Um, it, it likely doesn't feel good to have these blood sugar spikes either. Like you eat the Danish or whatever it is, and you probably get a little wiry. You might get a headache. You might feel um, these signs of high blood sugar where you're I guess wired is the best way I'm thinking to explain it. But then when you get this dip, you're going to feel tired, you're going to feel lightheaded, and you're probably going to feel hungry, like craving sugar again. So that doesn't feel great either. It's not something you want to probably continue. So I would just listen to those cues of your body. I do think the glucometer helps in terms of um, navigating what what is actually happening. And the interesting thing is like in Rob Wolf's book, Wired to Eat, I don't know how much you're aware of that, but he talks about these glucose tests with different foods. So let's say all these examples I came up with, like a bowl of white rice, which is a lot of starch. And then there's a banana, which is high in sugar, uh, a smoothie, like whatever, all these things. I could take the bowl of white rice and have this huge blood sugar spike, but Marissa might be able to eat that bowl of white rice and it doesn't do that. So it, that's the crazy like thing to add on to this is everybody's body reacts differently to different foods. Whereas like I might have the big, I don't remember which way I went, but I might have the uh, not have a reaction to a banana and Marissa might have that reaction. So neither one of us is like, quote unquote, healthier in terms of our blood sugar regulation. It's just different foods that put us into those spikes. So I think that's where the glucometer can really help is 
looking at what you're eating and is this causing these spikes? And that's what I did during pregnancy. I know I've talked about this um, because during pregnancy, the whole time you're in more of a state of insulin resistance. And that's because your body wants to keep insulin high to move the glucose to the baby. So it's not just moving it from your blood into your cells anymore. It's moving it to the baby. So you're, you're in a, a state of more insulin resistance the whole time during pregnancy. And that's why people can get gestational diabetes. And it's just another thing. So you can do that glucose drink at 28 weeks or whatever to see if you have gestational diabetes. But I chose to let me actually take all the numbers uh, and I started earlier than that, just to get an idea of what my body was doing with with what it was eating. You're getting that information now. You're seeing how your body is reacting to what you're eating. So you take this one hour after different meals, and my blood sugar was fine. I I think I was always below that 140, but the meals that got me like really close to that 140, white white rice is a big one for me. So I, when I was pregnant, I just tried to avoid it as much as possible. I wasn't dogmatic, like if some got in there, but I would, I would be very cognizant of it. Like I had some rice that's going to spike my blood sugar. Let me add some other foods that are not rice when I'm eating that. So I think that's it. And I did go through this as well. Like, you know, anecdotally, when I was 19, I had one of those six hour blood sugar tests where it's similar to that gestational diabetes test where you have some sort of drink and then they monitor you for six hours. It was horrible. Like, um, cause it's forcing, it's forcing that spike because it's like pure glucose <laughs> and it's very quickly absorbed. And I had just terrible headaches and it wasn't fun, but it was, I saw this huge spike in my numbers very quickly. And then this huge drop. So that's, this is what I had was reactive hypoglycemia. And I I'm confident I haven't done another six hour test, but I'm confident I've healed that with how I've been eating. Um, and I can just tell, like I, I could tell when I eat something that causes that reaction. So yeah. That's what I have to say about blood sugar. <laughs> that was really good. <laughs> so um, next question. Yeah. So we got a question about kids and tantrums. So Sandra said, I feel like my two-year-old may be having a reaction to something in his diet. He gets extreme tantrums sometimes, like almost violent. Yeah, tantrums are tricky. It's so hard as a parent to see your child doing this and be frustrated and also empathetic at the same time. It's, it's such a weird dynamic. So first I just want to kind of talk about tantrums in general. So kids can tantrum for many reasons. I'm sure we're all aware of this. They can be feeling stressed, hurt, tired, or hungry, or it could be a food intolerance. That's definitely a possibility. Um, you definitely know your kid better than anybody. And you probably can tell whether it's a quote, typical tantrum or not. Like, I don't know, for my son, he'll, he'll throw a tantrum, but then he can come around and be like, mommy, I was sad because blah, 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 blah. Or I was crying a lot because blah, 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 blah. So that's kind of what is typical for us. Now, if that didn't happen, I would kind of question things um, a little deeper. Um, but basically, just really broadly speaking, if our gut health isn't in check, our moods aren't in check. So there could be something going on with that. Um, I definitely... I think we've talked about this also multiple times on here is poop. 
look at, look at their stool. If they're an older kid, maybe they'll just happily show you what their poop looks like. I don't know, but there are charts you can um, find online called the Bristol stool chart. And you can kind of see what's normal, what's not normal, but basically the poop should be well-formed, not really many, if any food pieces in there, and it should be passed pretty easily. So if you are suspecting a food intolerance, you could keep kind of like a food and mood log where you're writing down what your child eats and any type of mood variations or symptoms that you notice. And then just kind of see if there's a pattern and see if maybe like fiddle around with that, maybe remove things for a certain number of weeks um, and just kind of see what changes. And then I'm just going to talk about tantrums and kind of this whole like aware parenting method. And I'm not trying to give unsolicited parenting advice or tell you how you should parent, but I have just found this incredibly, incredibly helpful for myself and my family. So I thought I'd just get into it a little bit. Um, Kids, especially when they're younger, generally can't express themselves the way that we as adults do. So what might seem like a silly really pointless tantrum or cry session or whatever to us makes total sense to them. Um, I know just as an example, if my husband and I are having a conversation and my son's trying to talk or is excited about something and we're not paying attention to him, he might act out like, I don't know, bouncing on our couch when we tell him a million times not to do that or completely melt down because he's not being heard. And there's a fine line of of acknowledging your child and being empathetic and kind of giving them their space to express themselves however they see fit, but also setting boundaries of, you know, daddy and I are talking, you could say, excuse me, like however you want to word that, whatever feels good to you. Um, because you know, they, they can't, they can't walk all over you either. So, so nothing really has humbled me more than becoming a mother because I feel like whenever you're a parent, everything comes up for you that maybe the way you were parented or things that kind of trigger you from the way you were raised before. I don't know. That's definitely been a thing for me. So really kind of sitting with my feelings and what makes me uncomfortable. Like for example, my son is freaking out because he doesn't want to brush his teeth and it just seems so pointless to me, but asking myself, why is this triggering me? Why is this bothering me? And learning how to sit with my uncomfortable feelings, but also his has been huge for us. Like sometimes even though it's like nails on a chalkboard, um, kind of sitting with him and verbalizing how I think he's feeling. If he can't do that himself, you're frustrated because I told you it was time to stop playing. I wish we could play all day, but we have to get ready for bed or things like that. And it might sound really trivial or kind of obvious, but it's made a huge difference in our relationship and our family dynamic. So that is just what's worked really well for me. Um, kids just don't have context for things like that. Um, They just hear the word no, or that they have to be all done doing something that they like, or they can't have whatever, and they don't like that. So they kind of lose it. And again, that's not to say that this is what's going on with your child and that you're doing anything wrong as a parent, but I just wanted to kind of throw that, um, that out there because it's really been helpful for us. And, you know, sometimes kids just need a good cry. That's a release for them, no matter how old they are. I mean, I'm, 31 and I still need a good cry sometimes, but I can express that and I can, you know, kind of reason through that, whereas younger kids generally can't. So sometimes it's hard to not fix the problem, but just sitting with them, setting these boundaries and just letting them know that you're there for them and that you understand and it's okay can make a big difference in the tantrums and just the emotions in general, in my experience. Yeah, I, I 
Definitely. I mean, we've talked about aware parenting a lot, but it's been extremely powerful. So last week's episode, we talked about intuitive eating and Chris shared her story about how she discovered her kid has a corn allergy. Um, But it was kind of work that her mother-in-law had put in and found out her husband had this corn allergy. So it was, it was easier for them to diagnose. And I just, I, that one is really tough and, but it's definitely something kids have and corn is in almost everything. So that's where it's really hard. If you think there's a food thing, it's really hard to nail down. So I'm going to second what Marissa said about, is your kid coming back? So is it, is it a tantrum where they're really, really upset but then after that, they're able to say, wow, that was, that was a lot of crying. That's what, that's what my son says. And he wants to talk like, I was really angry about that. And, but he's fully back to the person he was before the tantrum. And these tantrums can get kind of ugly. Like we let him throw pillows. We do not. We set very firm limits about not hitting, um, not hurting himself. But there is a physical release that can need to happen with a tantrum, like just getting the energy out of the muscles and like expressing that anger through actual tears, actual, you know, punching a pillow. And it can look scary to a parent when you don't know what's going on. And the same with the baby, like when they get that really, really wailing cry, it can seem scary. And it, especially if that goes on. So as much as we've done crying with our kids, there gets to a, be a point where they're like screaming, crying for too long. You're like, wait, is there something wrong? Like I need to stop this crying just to make sure, <laughs> make sure there's nothing wrong with my baby. So um, I think that's normal that that you just and I think it's healthy like you said you're actually able to get rid of this this sadness or anger or whatever it is and fully come back but that's where if there is something going on in your food that you're reacting to I don't think you'll see that like a half hour after the tantrum's over or whenever it is you're not going to be fully back there it's going to be something that's affecting you for probably 24 to 72 hours um so if you think it's an issue with a food, I would pay attention to are there uh, do these things happen more often when we eat outside of the house? Like you go to a birthday party and there's artificial colors in the frostings or um there's it, it can be very hard to pin these things down, especially when it's it's foods that are just in everything like artificial colors, corn, soy, um, that's a lot harder to identify than something like gluten or eggs is a common one that I think, I think parents are able to pick up on that pretty quickly because you know that you're eating an egg. So, so that's what I would look for. Like, does it seem like there is a disruption that, that stays for a while? So like Marissa said with, with gut issues. So certainly kids, especially when babies are first starting to eat, they're more likely to have these gut 
issues with foods. Like you introduce something and their gut isn't ready to handle it. And it doesn't mean, you know, if you introduce eggs and the kid doesn't react well to it, luckily they're not eating that many foods when they're that young, ideally, and you're able to identify that. And that doesn't mean that the kid is allergic to that food. It just means you're going to wait a few more months to reintroduce it. So that's why when babies are starting to eat, you introduce them slowly and you can identify that. And the the guts are just developing so much under the age of two that there can be a lot of reactions and your neurotransmitters all get made in your gut. So like serotonin, which makes you kind of more chilled out. If you have a gut disruption or a kid does, you might be missing some of that that like feel good serotonin and um, just with calming down to sleep. Like you said, you can look at the poop to see what you think might be going on in the gut. Um, so I think there's, I think we just want to tease out, is it really the food? Because I think there's a lot of people that want to just like, if you're doing these kind of elimination diets yourself and seeing results, sometimes you can put that on your kids. Like, Oh, it, I, I need to be restrictive or I need to eliminate a bunch of things. And it just might not be necessary because kids don't tend to have things. We have like leaky gut syndrome that it really takes years of eating crappy to develop that. And I think adults, like most of us have leaky gut to some extent because we grew up eating white flour and things that are just very disruptive to our, to our intestines. Um, but kids don't have that baggage. If they eat eat some of that stuff, sometimes it's it's not they're they're not damaged. I, I don't want to say damaged, but <laughs> they're not in that state where um, where they they can't come back from it. So kids just aren't in the state where they need to repair themselves. They can handle a little bit of foods that don't don't disagree, don't necessarily agree with them without causing this gut damage. So I think that's what I would look at to try to tease out. Is it a food thing or is it a normal tantrum? I know friends who have, I know a lot of people who've said like pretty much right when the kid turns two, right around that birthday, the need for independence really just springs up. Like they have opinions on things that it's like, why do they care? Like that the thing moved on their tray, like I moved it one inch over and now it's like, I didn't want my cup there and I move it back and that doesn't fix anything. Um, that's normal for a two-year-old. And so I think just like watch your kid over time. And I don't think, you know, the food and mood journal can be really helpful, but if it's too much, just try to like observe in generalities. Like I, I had this home cooked meal. I didn't find any of this, but then we went out and I saw these things. And then that's where you might want to take a more detailed log if you've narrowed down like, yeah, I do think there's, there's something to this. So that's where I would go. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to put too much stress around what the kid is eating if it's unnecessary. Totally. Yeah. So, all right. Well, I think that, yeah, I think that wraps up this week and keep sending your questions. We love getting them like the, we're getting more of a, a variety, which is really cool. So, um, yeah, thanks everybody for listening. We'll talk to you next week. 
Email us your questions at nourishedandnurturing at gmail.com and find us on Instagram at nourishedandnurturing. You can find more from me, Marissa, at confidentlybalanced.com. And you can find more from me, Michelle, on Instagram at Michelle Taggy. Please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast if you like what you heard and share it with a friend. We look forward to talking to you next week.